Hello and welcome to this special memorial edition of Nightlight, a memorial to Bradley Coker. You'll note that this is the second memorial edition of Nightlight that we've produced in the last two months. What you're about to hear is a re-presentation of the original eulogy that was offered at the funeral a few days ago before an audience of a little over a thousand people, many believers, but quite a number of unbelievers. But we thought it was best for you to hear the message in its entirety because of the nature of it and because of the prophetic words that are woven into the message. I have both the great honor and the difficult task of delivering this eulogy for Brad Coker. The word eulogy means good words, and it's not difficult for me to find good words to say concerning Bradley. I have no struggle searching for such words. He was in my life for over 12 years, and for the past two of those years, we were speaking together almost daily and were together quite often. My memories of him are full of his smile, his mischievous twinkle in his eyes, and most of all, his love for his wife, Roman, and for his family. But his supreme love and devotion was for Jesus and was reflected in his great desire to love the unlovable, to help the disenfranchised, and to protect the widow and the orphan. It is an honor to know him, and I look forward greatly to our reunion. The only difficulty today is in simply trying to find ways to tell you everything I want you to know about Bradley in such a short address. Anyone who knew Bradley in his teens and the Bradley of the past 13 years will attest to the supernatural transformation in his life. That transformation was still taking place on deeper and stronger levels, and only those who knew him best and understood the life he came from can truly understand the grace of God that has been rescuing and transforming Bradley Coker all these years. No one can deny that we are living in momentous times. At this moment, all the kingdoms of the Middle East are shaking. From Libya to Egypt to Iran, a fire of revolt has been set in motion that will move the world in the direction of the final conflict foretold by God's word. Our own nation is in a self-inflicted freefall into economic, moral, and spiritual insanity. Ominous events that preview even more ominous events are so many that the average person has lost the ability to pay attention. Many even well-intentioned people tend to want to hide or just run and play. Bradley, whenever he was running and playing, had one main goal on his mind. How can this moment this conversation, this meal, or this basketball game bring glory to God. But on Wednesday night, February 16th, at about 8 o'clock, the harsh realities of the world at large dimmed into the background for many of us here today. When Bradley's heart failed him that night and we all began to get the news, our own hearts were injured. So why would I begin a memorial message in honor of Bradley Coker with reference to the unfolding dangers and evils of the world? Surely we need to focus on Bradley himself, his life, his relationships, and his accomplishments, his constant smile and the heart of love and joy that energized that smile. There are scores of people in this room who could share moving or funny or dramatic memories of Brad. Every person here has his or her own personal stories, some lighthearted and joyful, some far more deeply personal and sacred. But in this special time set aside to honor the life of Brad, I feel the strong weight of responsibility to express what I believe Brad would want communicated. We will all have many private opportunities to celebrate Brad's influence on us for years to come, and I'm sure many of you are already doing that. But tonight, what was Brad about in these moments leading up to the last days of his life? Who was Bradley? Well, how do we ever eulogize anyone's life? Brad was a husband, a spiritual father, a son, a brother, a friend, most of all a man of God. Which chapter do we focus on? Whose point of view should we take? 
a young kid from South Carolina came to know Jesus Christ in his early 20s. That's when Mary and I first encountered Brad and Roman. Their hunger to get to know Jesus and follow him as closely as possible on this earth was contagious and became the central motivating force in their lives. What I loved most about them was their total lack of understanding of how to be religious. It was at first amusing to see them look at me in disgusted wonder whenever I would make mention of some church fight or some squabble over the color of carpet, etc. But my amusement at their disgust was quickly quickly replaced by true respect as I watched them go out and try to act like Jesus to every person they met. The down and out, the up and out, it never mattered. Mary and I communicate with scores of young adults, and we've never encountered any of them who loved Jesus any more than Bradley and Roman and sought to obey him in every aspect of their lives. This devotion could not satisfy Brad by simply attending church and being a private individualistic Christian. Brad was restless in his search to find ways to bring the kingdom of God into broken systems in order to liberate the individuals and families trapped by those systems. He saw the systems as manifestations of what Paul called principalities and powers. And since Jesus destroyed their power in the cross, he believed it was our responsibility and his responsibility to invade those systems in order to deliver their captives by the power of the cross. After he and Roman moved to Winston-Salem, Bradley discovered a government-owned and operated ghetto called Rolling Hills. He learned after investigation that over 1,800 acts of violence against women and children had been committed inside just one year of 2007 in that ghetto. Let me allow Brad to tell you in his own words, quote, It felt like a third-world country down there, was the first comment I made to Roman. I drove in and drove right back out, feeling a little embarrassed by my lack of courage. I pulled over and prayed, asking God for strength to turn around. As I drove back in, the sense of violence and desperation was palpable. How can people live like this in our city, was the question that came to mind. I could feel the tug on my heart in the second trip, and I drove into each nook and cranny and spoke to the residents who were outside. Somebody needs to do something here, I said to myself. And as I drove out, shocked at the standard of living, if you could call it that, I prayed, Lord, this place is an orphan, and if you want me to take care of it, I will. I walked to that property with Brad. As we walked, the tears were always slightly brimming in his eyes. I remember thinking how grateful I was that this was not mere sentimentality or impotent sympathy. Brad was intending fully to lay down his life the best he knew how to do something about the suffering he was weeping over. He, be he became involved in many high-level projects and interactions with leaders and business people and government officials on behalf of this vision. But lest anyone think that Brad was merely some youthful egotist trying to fulfill lofty ideals for his own sake, a temptation that all young people face. It was not uncommon for Brad to leave behind all the big meetings and razzle-dazzle of government interaction and go out into the night and find lonely, hurting individuals and spend the rest of the night buying them coffee and listening to their sorrows and correcting their misconceptions about God and life and themselves. And before sunrise... He would be reminding them of who they were created to be and introducing them to their Creator. Only God in eternity will reveal how many lost lives were redeemed in those late-night walks. Did he make mistakes? You bet he did. I don't know of anyone who attempts to do the kind of thing he was trying to do without making mistakes from time to time. Did he take on too much? I thought so. I said so on a few occasions, but he and I would end up telling stories and sharing experiences, and before our conversation was over, he would recount to me some wonderful recent story, like Chuck, the guy who came and asked him for $10 on a street corner one night, 
and ended up meeting Brad the next morning, all cleaned up so Brad could take him to his first job interview in his life. Or he would try to describe to me about little Libby. Libby was a little streetwalker Jesus sent Brad out into the night to find. All just so he could tell her Jesus loved her and buy her a loaf of bread upon her request. But Brad threw in peanut butter and jelly. And as he would speak to me about her, we would enter into that place where if an onlooker was observing, he would not be able to tell if we were laughing with some tears mixed in or crying with some laughter mixed in because we entered into that place where the joy of what we were talking about and the sorrow of the need of the people we were talking about all mixed together into an act of worship and gratitude mixed like peanut butter and jelly. And in those moments, I would lay aside my fatherly advice and stifle my mentoring caution and just cheer him on. I thought, who cares if he's making mistakes or doing too much? Thank God for such mistakes. They're all fixable. Thank God for people who overdo it, like Bradley. Now, I often wondered, though, how it was possible to be involved in so much visionary practical work during the day and so much personal ministry at night. Did the pressure weaken his heart? Did the sorrow for all the ones he could not reach bring about cardiac damage? Mayo Clinic recently reported that their research has concluded there is truly such a condition as what they've labeled broken heart syndrome. Now, Bradley's symptoms don't match Mayo's report, and I'm not interested in trying to make up some overly emotional storyline to support the idea that Brad's heart may have been damaged by sheer sorrow. But I leave you to ponder it. Could he have survived the strain of his vision had it been shared by more of the church? I don't ask that to accuse or condemn. I believe most people are truly doing all they can. God knows. But it's worth asking the question. Now, I need to address something at this point that many of you may find a bit unusual, but that's the very reason why I need you to listen closely to what I have to say, because it is unusual for the modern church to think of such things. It's known to most of us here in this room that when news of Bradley's death reached his wife, Roman, and then began to spread to those of us who worked with him most closely, that we all began praying for his restoration to life. We don't criticize any who think such a thing beyond possibility because we all understand how demanding it is for many of us who do believe, even to believe for physical healing, much less raising the dead. And sadly, though we have no biblical excuse for it, we suffer, many of us, from living in an unbelieving natural mindset of the materialist West in the face of such demanding task as believing God to manifest his power for the restoration of life to the dead, no one is looking to hand out medals to the great of faith, and no one is looking to hand out black marks to those who falter at the thought of even praying such a prayer. No one was thinking in terms of being some mighty superhero of faith who would sweep in and raise Brad from the dead. I don't think any, any of us are that foolish. But we do take Jesus' words seriously. And Jesus said, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Matthew 10, verse 7 and 8. Now those of us who believe the commands of Jesus to take the kingdom message into the world with the focus of bringing healing, cleansing, restoring of the dead, and freedom from evil spirits, seek to obey that command whenever possible. But most of us will admit there are several Bible verses we so-called Bible believers never, ever preach on. For instance, I don't think in all my 50-plus years in the church I've ever heard a sermon preached from Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, which says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were shattered, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which had died arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city, appearing to many. There seems to be a principle at work in Scripture related to the dead. 
The closer we are to Jesus' death and resurrection, the more dramatic are the raisings from the dead stories. Until you reach a crescendo with Lazarus, then Jesus dies, and Matthew tells us that at his rising, as the first fruits from the dead, that many of the long-dead saints arose with him and went about the streets of Jerusalem. Now, it seems to me that if this principle of death and resurrection accompanied the first fruits resurrection of Jesus, that there would be a crescendo of ruined funerals related to his second coming also. And so there is. These signs of impending final events of resurrection, when the last enemy, which is death, is destroyed by the resurrection of the saints of all ages, are like any other signs in that the closer one gets to Los Angeles, the more signs you see for Los Angeles. I believe, along with many, that the closer we come to the coming of Jesus, the more signs we see that point to the resurrection of the dead. Another point is that Jesus seems to treat death as no more austere than leprosy, sickness, or demons, though it does have, obviously, the superior place as being the last enemy. It is, in this context, listed as just another manifestation of the old order of things which the coming kingdom will displace. So, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out devils. Documented cases of the raisings from the dead and other similar miracles are available to anyone who's willing to seek out the evidence. Those who tend to believe that all these things have passed away with the first century are really becoming rather like the theological branch of the Flat Earth Society, well-meaning people but uninformed and refusing to look outside their own self-affirming materialistic Western world, even though a Christian Western world, and see that the Holy Spirit is moving throughout the earth in an ever-increasing crescendo pointing toward the birthing of the age to come. You probably won't find any mention of this on their dispensational charts related to the end times, but that's the whole point. These events are not on charts. They are walking around and living and breathing and pastoring churches and preaching the gospel. I don't mean to be disrespectful to those who are truly trying to be biblical exegetes and faithful to the texts of Scripture, but it's a bit embarrassing how much Bible-believing churches don't believe about the Bible. Some seek a compromise between biblical faith and Western unbelief by stating even in their church bylaws that, quote, we believe in the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, but only for the third world, end quote. This is an aside, but one of mine Bradley's often discussed subjects was that maybe since so many of us assume that only the third world countries qualify for the work of the Holy Spirit on this level, that maybe God will oblige the United States and qualify us by allowing us to disintegrate into third world status so that we'll get off our high horse and humbly receive the presence of God and whatever that presence brings. But thankfully, some believers are humbling themselves and taking on a childlike faith enough to at least try to obey the words of Jesus concerning the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead. So it was not at all out of line for us to seek the Lord concerning Brad's restoration, for we did not believe it was his time to go, and unlike the common popular thinking among so many, we do not believe that everything that happens is somehow God's will just because it happened. That kind of thinking fits far better in Islamic fatalism than in followers of Jesus. There are tragedies and evils that occur every day that cannot possibly be God's will unless God is evil and he's not. If all deaths are set in cement by the sovereign will of God, then how could Jesus or the apostles reverse those deaths by raising anybody from death? Death is an enemy, and Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now let me be clear that I don't pretend to have all the answers about this subject. There's no handbook for how to raise the dead, except one, obviously, and it's short on detail. But I do read the words of Jesus and seek to obey them, and Jesus relates the coming of his kingdom with the raising of the dead. Traditional religion makes no room for anything quite as tangible and present as to believe such things actually happen, as long as we can keep them in the context of Bible stories which can be relegated to some other time and place in history, we're perfectly happy to tolerate God. 
I include myself in this malady. I've learned quite a bit about myself during this vigil over Bradley. He and I had many discussions about questions of just what the gospel of the kingdom means and how to bring it to a suffering world in our generation. We talked about the raising of the dead issue. I didn't know then that my greatest struggle over such questions would be over Brad himself. For when the harsh reality hit me, I found that I wasn't much interested in the kingdom issues. I just wanted Bradley back. So I continue to work through my own private struggles over having to give him up to what I still consider to be a premature departure. I can leave all my unanswered questions in the hands of a faithful and loving father, which is where I also have left Brad. But I can honestly tell you what Brad would want us to consider here today, because this is what he dedicated his entire life for, the coming of that kingdom to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he would want us to consider what our response should be to the question of how we as believers are to manifest the kingdom in our own fallen world. I began this message with a short description of what we all know too well, that the world is on the brink on a hundred different fronts, that people's individual lives are in shambles, and that the moral fiber of the church is as weak in some ways as the world it claims to be trying to reach, and the simple Western mindset of matching argument with argument in a wrestling match of brains is no longer sufficient to reach such a world. We must return to the New Testament pattern of ministry in order to see the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. But let's be honest. We don't like God coming too close. Let us worship him with a far distance. Let us have our civil religious observances and sing God Bless America. And we'll even allow for some serious theological examinations of doctrine. But even those of us who engage in and to the very best of our ability live a serious life of discipleship have our limits to how close we want God to approach. If we are honest, now none of those things are bad. Some of them are very good. But what will we do if the God of our religious activities, the God of our intellectual faith, begins to draw near for real? How will we respond to him if he should choose by his sovereign grace to come near and openly interfere with the natural order of things? Resuscitations from the dead disrupt the proper common order. The chief priests were so committed to that so-called common order that after Jesus raised Lazarus, they sought to kill Lazarus in order to maintain the status quo that they called peace, John 12. So much for miracles making believers out of everybody. But it didn't take just Lazarus' resurrection to stir anger responses from the people of that era. Jesus' healing did it. His birth did it. So if God begins to engage people in such a way that it moves their lifestyle towards greater obedience to him, I wonder how that will affect our concept of the order of things. These are the kind of vital issues that Brad wrestled with every day. We humans respond to God in funny ways sometimes. A little religion is all well and good, but let's not get so serious-minded about God that we truly expect Him to show up and actually do things. I include myself in this human struggle. I who claim I want God to rend the heavens and come down find that I don't want Him to do it on certain days when I need rest or have other interests to pursue. I want to stress this fact about myself so that no one here gets the false idea that I'm condescending in this message. We're all coming to the place where the God who is will begin to bring us face to face with him. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, what will you do when the anesthetic fog, which we call nature or the real world, fades away and the presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable? Being around people who believe so much that they are willing to risk their reputations by asking God to raise someone from the dead is uncomfortable. Not because such people are necessarily crazy, though some, of course, may be. 
But there are very sane, stable, intelligent, and caring people who are not crazy, and they are pressing in to seek God with all their hearts, and they don't care what it costs. And we are celebrating the life of just such a man today, here now. These men and women have scripture to support what they believe. They have historical testimony of what they believe, and they have current documented proof of what they believe. They may or may not handle the attempt toward it with proper etiquette because it is hard to find rule books for how to do it. So what makes us uncomfortable is that even a prayer for the restoration of the dead that is not answered in the affirmative by God still awakens a corporate awareness of the invisible reality our arrogant materialist humanism seeks to quash at every turn. The prayers of such people remind us all that one day, if not this day, All that are in their graves shall hear the voice of the Son of God and be raised from their graves, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. John 5, verses 28 and 29. And when we do not like public reminders of that impending, inalterable, and unavoidable fact, how will we behave? So how do we carry on? For those whose hearts are broken, first we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Then we reconsider what we believe about life, death, eternity, and living in the present moment. We take account of what life is ultimately about, and we carry on in the light of Brad's own faith, which carried him through death, and we follow behind him, knowing that soon, and maybe very soon, We will see Brad again forever beyond the reach of death. For others who have no faith or whose faith is floundering due to disappointments of all kinds, there are really only two alternatives. First, to numb the pain and suppress the memory of the one you love and try to push out of your mind the fear that you will never see them again, or to reevaluate the claims of the gospel and then surrender to Christ with all your heart, trusting him to bring you home too eventually. In closing, let me say that Bradley has come to know a lesson about the cross that few in the body of Christ know. We all acknowledge that the cross is the place where our sins are forgiven, and rightly so. But there is a principle in the work of the cross that goes well beyond the forgiveness of sins. It is the principle of conquest through weakness, It seems to be a principle that exists in the very nature and character of God, whether there had ever been an earth or a cross or not. The cross is where we are forgiven, but it is also where we die. This death of the self-life that opens the way for the power of the resurrection is the work of the cross in our lives after our conversion. The most powerful being in the universe took upon himself the form of a man, then humbled himself down not only to human body, but to a servant. Not only to a servant, but to death. Not only to any death, but death on a cross, the most humiliating and cruel form of all deaths. In this humbling down to the lowest, he is now raised to the highest, and has destroyed death and evil in that one great act. This is not only a historic fact or a theological event. It is a principle in God, for it is God himself that performs this through the cross, and he repeats it in our lives to whatever degree we will submit to it. Bradley had sought to submit to this work as deeply as he knew how to submit. So when we are called by Jesus to be identified with him in the cross, to die at the cross, we're being called into partnership with him in the same descending, ascending task. So that in the early days of the church conflict with the world, the word witness was the word martyr. They overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, or their martyrdom. And they did not love their lives even to the death. Revelation twelve eleven. Not every martyr dies on a cross, but every martyr dies through the cross. Not every martyr dies at the hands of men, but every martyr dies at the hands of the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But because of the cross, 
and the overthrow of death through the cross, the devil's stealing and killing and destroying now cannot touch the child of God, even if he kills one. When he's allowed to bring death to one of God's own, the principle of the cross immediately goes into effect, so that the way down for the stricken believer becomes the way up. And whatever evil was in play to bring about seeming death is destroyed in the process, while the believer emerges from that death encounter forever beyond death, perfected and holy. As was read at the beginning of our service today from John chapter 12, Jesus says, Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies... Many, many more will live. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Again, the word is martyrs. The power of the Holy Spirit upon us is the power to overcome evil by going through the cross and emerging from it free of death forever. This is the great message. This is the good news. This is the death sentence levied against death and hell. For some, it is at work while we still live out our earthly journey. In other words, this work goes on in us while we go through the normal tasks of life and the daily struggles of existence. Nothing dramatic, nothing all that confrontive from the earthly point of view. We may be living a fairly, quote, normal life, but this work of the cross is going on inside of us in ways that only God and we know. But for others, this work of the cross can take a more visceral, a more immediate form. But for all of us, it is the door we pass through to draw near to him, to come to, quote, know him in the power of his resurrection through the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to his death so that if by any means we might attain to the resurrection of the dead while still in this mortal body. Philippians 3, the Amplified Translation. Power to do miracles and work wonders are certainly part of this endowment. But the ultimate power that brings the ultimate victory is in the cross principle that I've been speaking about. And it is at work in the life of every believer who will embrace it. Bradley embraced it as fully as any man knows how. And we all might feel something precious that has been wasted, like the precious ointment that was poured on Jesus' feet was seen as wasted. But Jesus replied to the critics concerning that so-called wasted ointment, don't criticize, she's anointing me for my burial. He meant that the cross principle at work in what seemed a waste is mystically tied to the cross and united to the work that that cross is accomplishing. And in our natural, understandably grieved hearts and minds, what seems like a waste from the eternal perspective, which is the only perspective that matters, it is a seed falling into the ground in death that will bring forth much life. Writer Duvern Franke says, quote, do you long for divine power in your life? Look at Stephen, quote, full of faith and power, who did great signs and wonders and miracles among the people. As he bears witness before the Jewish council that Jesus is the Messiah, God attested to his ministry with miracles and signs. He crowned his testimony, though, by laying down his life for the one who had died for him. The power of the cross manifested as much in the glowing face of Stephen as in the words of his message, and it reached out and laid hold of Saul of Tarsus. This persecutor of the church became the apostle who above all others demonstrated the glorious message of the cross. In an apparent tragedy, the death of a young man just entering into powerful ministry, with signs and miracles following his ministry, we may see from the Father's point of view the cross as a place of death, that brings forth supernatural life, end quote. I think we can all relate. The death of a young man with a ministry with signs and wonders whose heart was open and laid bare before the world as a testimony of the gospel 
is no waste in death. Now, you might wisely point out that we're not talking about martyrdom here. We're talking about a heart attack. But I've already addressed the fact that my personal belief is that Bradley's heart was broken. It was broken for the suffering of the world, broken, broken for the ongoing brokenness that he saw in the body of Christ, that he himself struggled through, that he saw others dying for not struggling through. And in some ways, I believe the principle of martyrdom is still at work, even though we're talking about what some might return, refer to as a, quote, natural death rather than a martyrdom. It's our common experience that we offer to God the best we know how to offer. We all do, like Peter promising he will die for Jesus, but he didn't think he would have to die, so the offering was an easy one. But when the time came for naked reality to call Peter's best to be demonstrated, he found that he was sorely lacking, just like we all have. We don't sit in superior judgment of Peter if we're wise. No, we learn from him something about ourselves. It's too easy to put off the real kingdom by just singing about it or preaching about it, even longing for it. But when it comes and makes a real demand on us, one that is far outside our comfort zone, it's revealing what it awakens in us. I don't say this to condemn or criticize any. I have found a great deal of shakiness and weakness in myself these past few days. But I do know this. Whatever we do, whatever we see occur, whatever results it all brings, we who have been privileged to know Bradley Coker, to be near him, to watch him grow and change, to experience the maturing vision on the one hand and the childlike loving simplicity of his heart on the other, have entered now into a new arena of faith and reality of the kingdom from which we will never withdraw. We will never be the same again. May we continue to move further up and further in, simply and humbly, believing and obeying God until we too pass through the same portal Bradley has just passed or we meet him in the air with Christ at his coming. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This has been the complete eulogy that was offered at Bradley's funeral a few days ago in its entirety. I want to add some things here uh, in closing. Footnotes, if you want to call them footnotes, but they're far more to me than footnotes. Because you see, beside the fact that I'm hurting and missing him, and beside the fact that I have a, a selfish personal reason for wanting to share him with you so that it can help soothe my own heart, I can honestly say that another reason that I want to share the things that I want to share is because Bradley's life, <clears throat> right to his death, was an exemplary life for those who want to follow the Lord and make a positive difference in the earth where you live in your daily life as well as beyond your borders into other areas. I talked good about Bradley before he died, so I don't, I'm not, I'm not uh, engaging here in some kind of uh, post-death fantasy, uh, you know, like is so often the case, and understandably so, that we, we want to say good things about those who have gone before. I, w I want to show you some things about Bradley's life that we all need to learn from. And um, did I ever get in his face? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm struggling with the memory of the last time I chewed him out. Wasn't that long ago. And he did deserve it. Maybe partly deserved it. But one of the things I remember about him is how humbly he took the correction and how ashamed I felt after I, I was finished because uh, his spirit of humility and receiving correction was a uh, far greater uh, example of Christ-likeness than my uh, harsh correction was. Did he... Uh, 
Did he make mistakes? I said that in the eulogy. Yeah, of course he made mistakes. But his mistakes quite often were more fruitful than some of our best endeavors because of the heart that was being formed in him by his abandoning himself to God. Now I want to read to you uh, a couple of other things before we come to the close of our time together. One of them is the words spoken at the funeral by his one of his closest friends, Dr. Ed O'Brien. Then I want to give you some information concerning the raising of the dead. And I want to close with a bit more on the cross principle and learning to live in the power of the cross, which destroys death and causes us to become people who will recklessly abandon ourselves to God's purposes in the close of the age. This is what Dr. Ed O'Brien had to say about Bradley. Quote, Let it never be said about Bradley Coker that he was a nice guy. I mean, who could say that about him? He was so, so much more than that. Bradley Coker was a dangerous man. Did you ever feel when you were with Bradley like you were some sort of secret agent for the Lord? Walking in a power and a stature that you weren't quite used to, going places that were a little bit dangerous, a little bit off the radar, a little bit socially marginal. Did that ever make you feel nervous or uncomfortable? Did you not feel challenged? Didn't you notice the way a room changed when he was in it? Could you ever be around Bradley for any given period of time and not be transformed? Can you think of a time when Bradley put himself before you, wouldn't let you borrow a dollar, refused to pray or play with you, or wouldn't laugh at your cheesy jokes? I really always had the faith that I could throw Bradley into any situation and he would bring light and clarity out of it. That's exactly what happened in Uganda on a recent medical mission trip where he, Roman, and Bobby radically transformed several hundred people's perception of healing prayer. But he was like that with everything. Throw him into a marriage, a conflict, a problem, and you'd be guaranteed to get God's perspective on the whole thing. Throw him into a group of homeless people, druggies, or a group of guys playing poker, a group of highly successful businessmen, lawyers, or doctors. It didn't matter with Bradley. He was not operating out of fear, pride, or greed, but rather out of love for Jesus and love for all of us. It's rare to find a man these days with the combination of someone who loves recklessly, lives his life shamelessly, devoted to his God, and would sacrifice everything in his possession to see one person saved. And yet we all can have the honor of saying that we know such a man, a man that grew larger and larger with every realization of the calling on his life, a man who fasted and prayed for complete strangers continents away and saw miraculous physical healings, a man who had overwhelming faith for the changing of an entire city, a man who wouldn't be satisfied with anything less than the full coming of God's kingdom on earth and who understood the bigness of that story. So I ask, can you think of a time when Bradley gave up on you? Can you think of a time when he sold out his faith? Or are your memories of Bradley like mine, always caring, always willing to talk and lend advice, persistently perceptive, extraordinarily discerning? There is no way to fabricate the authenticity of the confidence Bradley walked in. This isn't Tony Robbins' stuff. It's real. He understood who the Lord said he was, he knew his identity, and he was able to impart that to those around him. The funny thing about Bradley is that Bradley never really was about himself. So when you remember Bradley and seek to fulfill and further his calling on this earth, please don't settle for just being a nice guy. Now, we tried to pray, we did pray, we didn't try to pray. We prayed earnestly and focused uh, focused our faith for his restoration. We believed that his death was untimely, that it was outside the will of God, that it was an attack of the enemy. And so we sought the Lord for his restoration. That freaked some people out. I said in the eulogy, I, I don't 
I don't fault anybody who felt freaked out, except that we don't have a biblical excuse for being uh, put off by the idea of praying for the raising of the dead. And some extra bold in faith may say, well, you know, we didn't, we didn't actually, we weren't actually told to pray for the raising of the dead. We were told to raise the dead. And again, that gets into the semantics of, uh, of, uh, raising the dead etiquette that I don't think we have any any uh, clear direction on. Uh, unless you're way, way ahead of me, and you may be. I, I'm not really up to telling dead bodies what to do. Uh, I think I'd rather talk to the one who knows a lot more about it than me and ask his wisdom and guidance about it. Maybe as I progress in these final days of the history of the earth, I'll reach a place where I can just know the heart of God and the mind of God and just speak it and see God do it. Maybe that'll happen. But right now, uh, I'm not there, and I don't want to pretend to be there. Uh, but I, I tell you where I am. I am at the place of being willing to ask the Lord uh, to restore back to life one who I believe was taken in an untimely way. The Lord did not see fit to respond to that, and Bradley is with him. Andrew Womack, whose son died in a hospital at the age of 26, was restored to life after medical confirmation of his death. Five hours of prayer saw him restored to his father. Andrew has seen others raised from the dead in similar fashion. Now, before I go further, let me answer a question that comes to the, the, to the mind in most people. Why, if that really happened, Clay, it would be all over the newspapers, wouldn't it? It would be report. Well, well, let me. Would it? Would the newspapers report anything like this? I quote James Rutz here, where he answers this question: Why don't they put these things in the papers and on television if they really happen? The short answer is they can't. Readers and viewers and industry critics would tar them with accusations of sensationalism, gullibility, fomenting religious hysteria, promoting cults, falling for frauds and hoaxes, yellow journalism, and the list goes on and on. Another reason is that the very few reporters are evangelicals who like to attend healing crusades. There's not many, you know, who are there. That means that reports of miracles come to them secondhand and thus are suspect. Biblical religion does not occupy a revered position in most big city newsrooms. So if an evangelical uh, rents a hall or sets up a tent, the typical editor will not be motivated to assign a reporter, much less a camera team, to spend three hours filming the healer's every move in hopes of uh, a clear miracle. And any reporter who promised his editor footage of, a, of, of an event like that would receive the smile normally reserved for the village idiot. On one notable occasion, the national press had to report on a miracle. It was when Cheryl Salem Pruitt, uh, who was chosen Miss America in 1980, they don't award that crown to limping girls with left legs two inches shorter than the other one, which was her condition after she almost died in a car crash at age 11, but at 17, on October 21st, 1974, God instantaneously lengthened her leg to normal in a Kenneth Hagen meeting. The Lord did such a perfect job that five years later in Atlantic City, she uh, won the Miss America contest. Uh, at the big press conference the next morning, the first questions were about the faith healing issue. As Cheryl launched into her story, she commented later, a wonderful thing happened Incredibly, faces that had been hardened by years of skepticism began to soften into those belonging more to curious children. Hardly hostile, the press was fascinated. The soft but hard uh, ambivalence of media people was revealed precisely in a comment afterward. As reporters were leaving, Cheryl overheard one say, You know, it's the darndest thing to hear her speak. She could almost make a believer out of me. Almost, but not quite. If you'll think about it logically, you will see that just because something is miraculous or powerful or demonstratively real does not mean that the press that specializes in skepticism and disdaining of anything good would be ready to sound the trumpet 
uh, announcing the presence of God manifesting himself among us. So let's don't fall for the idea that if it's real, you're going to read about it in the newspapers or see it on television. That's really a naive thing for most of us, all of us, to assume. The fact is that on November 30th, 2001, Daniel Ikechukwu, the pastor of Power Chapel Evangelical Church in Onitsa, Nigeria, was riding with his friend Kingsley Aruka uh, to take a Christmas present to his father in a village nearby. On the way home, going down a steep hill, the brakes failed, and Daniel uh, struck a pillar of stone in his Mercedes Jeep that threw him into the windshield and then thrust the steering wheel through his chest. He lived only for a short time after he was taken to the hospital. His wife arrived uh, just in time to see him uh, breathing his last. Earlier that morning in her daily Bible readings, she had quickened to her a verse from Hebrews chapter 11 that said, Women receive their dead back to life again. News of her husband's death, of course, was a terrible shock, but she took hold of that verse, claiming that it was spoken directly to her heart. It was for her. The text in Nika's head made it impossible for her to accept the plain evidence that Daniel had gone or to allow him to be buried. Her agitation dictated that something must be done, but at 11.30 p.m., when they brought Daniel's body to Dr. Jossi Anabanusia, at the St. Eunice Clinic, he confirmed the death. From there, the body was taken to Akaduru General Hospital Mortuary, not far away. The resident mortician, Mr. Barlington Manu, carried out the normal checks at 1 a.m. Saturday. The mortuary having no cold storage facilities, the mortician administered the usual chemical preservative injection and prepared the body for embalming on the following morning. When a staff member uh, with a staff member, he laid the body out on a mortuary slab between two other dead people. Everyone then retired for the night. Convinced her husband would live again, Nika wanted the body taken to the church in Onicha, where Reinhard Barkey was to speak at a dedication ceremony. So the next morning, Sunday, December 2nd, they went to take the body from the mortuary, but the mortician was worried about their intentions. To hide the fact that a body was being taken away, he dressed it for a funeral as a pretext, placed it in a coffin and shut the lid. They took Daniel in his coffin and set off for the long drive to Onitsha. Arriving at Onitsha Church compound, the state security officer and the ushers saw them driving up with a coffin and ordered them to turn around and leave, but Nika pled and persisted. So after checking the coffin for a terrorist bomb, they relented and allowed the body to be taken out and carried into the church, but only to the downstairs area. The church's bishop's son, Paul, and another pastor in the church staff, uh, uh, Mr. Nwando, laid the body on a table and found that the rigor mortis had made the limbs stiff as iron, an iron rod. Two other staff pastors, uh, Lawrence Onyika and Luke Abiqua, uh, joined them to guard the body. Upstairs, meanwhile, Bonke went on preaching, unaware of the events downstairs. Before long, the pastors noticed a slight twitching of the stomach area of the corpse. Then they saw the corpse draw a breath and begin breathing in short bursts. Encouraged, they called, <laughs> encouraged, what an understatement. Encouraged, they called for a video camera and threw themselves into powerful petitionary prayers, stripped the body of the mortuary, uh, trappings and shirt and so forth. Uh, as this news broke out into the sanctuary above, it created pandemonium. Then at 5.15 p.m., nearly two days after his death, Daniel opened his eyes, sat up, and uh, leaned on Pastor Lawrence. People began crowding into the hall to see this resurrect resurrected man. Lawrence was worried Daniel would not have enough oxygen. So it's funny how people react and it, you know, <laughs> Make sure that that man doesn't suffocate. Anyway, they gave him sips of warm tea, and uh, to give him a clear space, they seated him on a chair on the platform where hundreds of people saw him slowly recovering. He had not yet collected his thoughts, and for a while could not recognize anyone, not even his own son. But by evening, however, he was fully coherent, and as you will see uh, if you ever uh, review the video, Daniel is 100% lucid today. 
this was a very public event and has been documented like no other event like it. At 6 o'clock on an April evening in 2001, five-year-old Arjun Jonki Das died in New Delhi from an accidental electric electrocution. His parents took him to a medical clinic where they worked on his body for two hours without success. They were told to take the body to the mortician. Instead, they called Roderick at the nearby Deliverance Church. He then called upon Savitri, one of his staff members. Savitri brought, brought two other Christians to Arjun's home, and the five of them began praying over the dead body about 10 p.m. They prayed their hearts out for six hours. Then at 4 a.m. the next morning, Arjun snapped back to life. No brain damage, no problems. Today, he's a normal eight-year-old kid. Now, for some reason, I guess it's just normal human nature, I, I guess, but people get all caught up in, well, how long were they dead, and uh, what did they die of, and uh, so forth. And uh, I suppose in some cases that would matter. If a man is raised back to life, as one man was, whose head had been almost completely severed and was only held on by the spinal cord, uh, maybe that would be more impressive than if someone was raised from the dead who died of malaria and had been dead for two or three days. And I'm actually citing real cases in both of those. But at, at some point, you you got to stop. You got to stop trying to figure out, uh, you know, which one might be just a little too hard for God to handle. It's not that, uh, obviously, it's not that we think God can't handle it. It's that our minds can't handle it. And our minds can't handle it because we've not acknowledged it. And we've not acknowledged it because of uh, several centuries of ensconced and increased uh, intellectual arrogance that disguises itself as theological accuracy. God just doesn't do these things anymore, says we. Uh, the longest uh, 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 documented case we have of someone dead who was raised back seems to be uh, the story of uh, Pastor Emmanuel Tuaragaramana, who in uh, Kenya, he's a pastor in Kenya now, he, he died in the Rwandan Civil War in 1994, was dead for seven days and was restored. Uh, look, if you're skeptical, that's healthy. Healthy skepticism saves us from a lot of gullible foolishness that brings dishonor to Christ. But if your skepticism reaches a point of just sheer uh, teeth-gritted unbelief because the idea is so foreign to your preconceived ideas, more informed by uh, humanism than by Scripture, then you've got to start checking your heart to see where you are before the Lord about these issues. The fact is that there are reports like the ones I've been quoting to you from all over the world and from every walk of life, and such reports are increasing. Uh, the, the, just a few of the nations that we have reports from, Algeria, Argentina, Australia, Bulgaria, Burundi, Cambodia, Canada, China, Congo, Cuba, England, Ethiopia, Fiji, Finland. I mean, we just go on and on. There's hardly a place on the planet that there is not evidence of the move of the Holy Spirit in this area. Now, uh, the issue is this. The issue is not whether someone is raised from the dead or not. The issue is not what you or I believe about it. The issue is, is God manifesting his kingdom work in the earth the way the scripture says he would do before the end of the age? And if it's God doing it, then what what are you going to do to respond to it? And uh, Psalm 102 says, My people shall make of themselves a free will offering in the day of my power, or the day I gather my army. Here again, as I mentioned in Brad's uh, eulogy, there is that direct connection between sacrifice and power. To know him in the power of his resurrection, we must uh, enter into the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to his death. They overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. The word of their testimony is the word of their martyrdom. 
It is the testimony, whether we die in a martyr's death or whether we just stand in the spirit of the martyr willing to die because we are empowered by the resurrection life of Christ in us and have died a death to our fleshly life that is such a death that it allows the resurrection power of God to come through us because he's unhindered now by our worldliness and our materialism. Every one of us who is seeking to follow the Lord to, what, to some degree or other, is being called by the Spirit into this death in the cross, this dying to self. The purpose is never dying for dying's sake. That's legalism. The purpose of the dying is to make way for the life, the true life, that will manifest itself in the place of the unlife that is what natural life is apart from the grace of God. So in our closing moments together, Maybe we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would guide us all into where he wants us to go. Not all of us are going to see physical raisings of the dead necessarily. Not all of us are going to see physical miracles necessarily, though you certainly are expected to expect them. But we all are called to manifest the life of Christ in the earth until he comes. To whatever degree and whatever station God has placed us. And so, Father, we lay our hearts bare before you now, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would deal with each of us individually concerning what we are not yielding to you. Not in some introspective legalism, Father, but we ask that you would search us by your Spirit, that you would show us our hearts and, and help us truly interact with you about the things that are hindering your, your spirit having his way with us so that we might become those that fulfill that verse in Psalm 102, uh, that we might be an ar army who makes of ourselves a free will offering in the day of your power. Prepare us, Father, to bring the close of the age and to bring back the King. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we ask it, Lord, for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.